Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're joined by two old friends of the show, Naomi Alderman on her new sci-fi novel, The Power... And then Patina Gapper on her latest collection of short stories, Rotten Row. Naomi Alderman is the author of three previous novels, Disobedience, The Lessons and The Liar's Gospel, which we've talked about on the previous Little Atoms. She has won the Orange Award for New Writers and the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award. She was selected for Granter's once-a-decade list of best young British novelists and Waterstones writers for the future. She presents science stories on BBC Radio 4. She's a professor of creative writing at Bath Spa University. And she is the co-creator and lead writer of the best-selling smartphone audio adventure app and book, Zombies Run. And Naomi's latest novel... The power we're going to be talking about today. Naomi, it's amazing to have you back on the show. Oh, it's a delight to be here. Thank you very much. What's the premise behind The Power? All right, so The Power is about what happens, let's say, tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, when all of a sudden, almost all the women in the world suddenly develop the power to electrocute people at will. And then everything is very, very different Mm -hmm. quite quickly because the silhouette that you have to be afraid of coming down the dark alley towards you is not a man's silhouette, but a woman's silhouette. And things happen in places all around the world. And in a way, part of the idea of the book is to have the reader ask themselves what they think would happen and have the reader say to themselves what would be different or what would be exactly the same in my life if this were to happen. And Um, I don't propose that I have all of the answers for what would happen, but I'm enjoying posing the question. It's really amazing and strong idea. Where where did it come from? Where did you first have it? Yeah, it's it's so funny because I can tell you like what the emotional conditions were in which I had this idea. The emotional condition was that I was going through a really horrible breakup a few years ago. I got onto the tube train one day. I was just in that in the midst of this real emotional turmoil. One of those points in my life when I was just waking up every morning and you know crying hysterically for an hour before the day started i got onto the tube train there was a poster of advertising a some thriller with a picture of a beautiful woman in tears you know clearly had been roughed up a bit and something in me just broke when i saw this because that was what i was doing i was waking up every morning in tears and it felt like the whole of society saying to me what you're doing right now when you're waking up crying, when you feel like your life is over, when you are afraid and upset all the time. We like that. Carry on. That's sexy. And I started thinking about what would be the smallest thing I would have to change in the world that would mean that I could get onto a tube train and see a photograph of a very beautiful man with tears running down his face and know that I was supposed to find that sexy and attractive and nice. Which I think is the other thing, you know, like it's presented to men to say, hey, look at this, isn't it lovely? Which is, I mean, that must be almost equally problematic. So that's the emotional thing that the idea came out of. And I thought for a long time about exactly what it should be that women should be able to do. And for a long time, it was some sort of unspecified thing that would cause pain, but nothing actually useful. That was pretty Mm -hmm. important because um, 
there are those conversations about, you know, well, why the patriarchy? And one of the answers is, well, you know, men can just do more stuff. They can, like, hurl spears further in the prehistoric hunter-gatherer times, or they can carry well, women more... women can pick nice berries. Yeah, exactly. colours better or Yeah, women can pick Jesus. nice berries. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> exactly. Jesus is exactly right, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, women, women can see nice colours and can, like, I don't know, women can, like... All of this, it's all just so stories anyway. So there's, but there are all these just so stories about men can hurl the spear and can catch the animal, and that's why the patriarchy, because they could just do more useful things. And I wanted to see how far I could get by not giving women anything that was very particularly useful, but just something that would cause a huge amount of pain. So for a long time, I had a kind of more inchoate power that would be something to do with just hurt. But then the more I thought about it, the more I wanted it to be very rooted in the real world and so I lit upon the the thing that electric eels can do which they really can do a full-grown electric eel if it discharged its full electric shock and a bunch of people were standing in water with it it could kill four to five people so that is a thing that exists in the genome of a being that evolved on the same planet as us so it's not totally outlandish imaginary it's not completely impossible that it could exist in the genome of something like us and uh, that was good because then it felt like I've only made one little posit here and everything else I can just go and research and Mm -hmm. actually when you go to look at what electric eels can do they're much more interesting than you'd think and you did do that, obviously. And, mm. and interestingly, you, further than just researching it for the book, you got to make a radio show. I did. I did. So I present this, this programme, Science Stories. And at the time that I was working on it and they were, we were talking about ideas, I was reading about electric eels and increasingly fascinated by them. So I suggested it for a programme and we made a programme about animal electricity, which was just brilliant. I got to find out so much stuff about it. And a lot of the stuff that I found out didn't make it into the programme, but made it into the book. So one of the things is that Electric eels can remote control their prey. They not only do they um, can they send send out a stunning shock, mm-hmm. but they can also modulate the electric shock that they make to uh, make their prey twitch. If it's hiding somewhere, then the electric eel can make the prey twitch. But also to confuse the prey so that instead of swimming away from it, it swims towards the eel. So this is some very complicated electrical stuff that mm-hmm. the eels are doing, which was super exciting for me, and it all went straight into the book. <laughs> Because at that point, I was just like, well, I've, I've decided on a real thing. I've decided on exactly the same thing that electric eels have, and then I can just use exactly what they can do. They can also do electrolocation, which is like echolocation, uh, where they send out an, an electric pulse, and then because of the different interference waves coming back to them, they can tell where they are, even if it's totally dark. And so at the end of this, I really wanted that electric eel power. It's great. So this is, I mean, it's a... Science fiction book. Yes, it, it is, is a science fiction book. It as. It's not only it's it's science fiction in that sense of being speculative, and it's also science fiction in that there's actual science in it. There are science fiction books where you know this could have been a book where you you spend a lot of time talking about how that you know how that evolved mm. in women and how it came about and how it worked and all of that. And there is a little bit of that. But this is much more... I was reminded of like, the Day of the Triffids, where, mm. for instance, there's a little tiny bit of explanation at the beginning yeah. that sets up how this world got to be in this position, but then the story of the book is just set within that world. Yeah. And that's what you do here. Yeah, good. I'm really glad you're reminded of the Day of the Triffids. I love the Day of the Triffids. Mm, it's I one mean, of my favourite books. Yeah. I think, I think it's brilliantly done in that respect, that he just says, well, there are these two things that happen. There are these meteorites, and then everyone goes blind. And the, then there are these Triffids, which were genetically uh, designed that just take advantage of it and that's all you need and and it's it's much nicer not to have it all explained so there were previous drafts of this book where i explained it much more and i found the more i explained it the less real it seemed and the more i just accepted it as just a thing that has happened the more it felt real and plausible and less like it was just going to kind of vanish which was useful yeah, and all you need is just a tiny little hint. So I have mm. a couple of little hints. One, so I, ha- I have a thing I say about that something got into the water supply yeah. during the Second World War, which is, you know, it didn't happen that way, but it could have done. And the other thing I say is that this is taken as proof of the aquatic ape hypothesis, which is this idea that maybe human beings... It's, it's, a, it's, it's, not, it's not a very, very well-accepted idea. No, but I, I think you're being, yes. you're being polite about yeah. that idea. <laughs> but if we were to suddenly start being able to electrocute people at will... Yeah. It might be more evidence for the aquatic ape, ape hypothesis, which so so you know that's just it's just an alternate reality. But yeah, I think you don't need to know. 
as a craftsperson making a book, you look at the Day of the Triffids and you go, oh, I can see how he's put this together. But as a reader, you don't. You, all you need is something vaguely plausible, yeah. and then you're off. Now, I remember you telling me about this premise like about a year and a half ago and thinking, this sounds amazing, it's a really great idea, and then imagining in my head where this was going to go. Okay, of course, you know, so women get this power, which means, you know, suddenly men are intimidated by women, they're going to be able to assume positions of power, and the world will become a much better place because (laughs) women are in charge. (laughs) Turns out that's not what this book is at all. (laughs) Although with the caveat, to be fair, that I'm obviously a man, you are, you are reading it, man. Even so, yeah, it's yeah. not a good place. No, well, it is hilarious to me that people call it a dystopia because I always want to say, well, it's only a dystopia for the men. Um, it's it's only a dystopia insofar as the world that we live in is a dystopia. Yeah. Um, so there's nothing that happens in this book that hasn't happened within my lifetime to women mm-hmm. in different parts of the world, and most of the things that are happening that happen in the book are happening right now to some women. So I think. This is a really interesting question, Neil. And I haven't been able to have this conversation with somebody yet. If you think that women would do it better, like, what is the reason that you think that? Well, and can I say this without... Should we just have this and not necessarily include it, include <laughs> it in the thing? You, you answer this question in the book with a bit, of, you know, at the end, mm. where you're talking about, oh, well, obviously men must have done this, behaved in this way because men are more naturally nurturing yeah. and stuff and all, and all of that. <laughs> I mean, you do have that argument in the book. You, you, you turn it yeah. completely on its head. I do have it. Yes, I loved that. I loved writing that. I mean, it is a real question to me. Like, I think... It's really fascinating how many people think that, apparently think that the world would be better Mm. if women were running it, which raises, like, so many questions. One question is, if loads of people think the world would be better if women were running it, why don't we just make women run it? And the second question is, like, then what is it that you believe about men? Or, you know, is it, are we believing that men are just, like, naturally more horrible? And, you know, some belief like testosterone poisoning or something, or, you know... And I sort of feel like, in essence, this book is nice about men, in that sense. You know, it's not, it's not a book that says, oh, men are evil. It's like, well, people are rotten sometimes. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I feel I'm going to say it a lot in this context. It only takes one person to poo in the swimming pool for everybody's day to be spoiled. So you don't have to say all women are evil or all men are rapists in order to accept that if women could all electrocute people at will rather than, you know, those isolated superhero stories where there's like one lone hero. If they could all do it, there would also be some really nasty women who could Mm -hmm. do it. And, you know, you don't have to believe that all men are rapists to go, well, the fact is men are physically stronger than women. Therefore, there'll be some very bad men who will use that to overpower women and have Mm -hmm. sex with them against their will. And in fact, use it to do the same with other men as well. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, fascinating whilst I was writing the book I thought oh well this is not going to come as news to anybody like this idea that women are any nicer than men surely has been roundly debunked but I think it hasn't been I think people maybe still believe that and in a way that is that's one yeah well that's what the book is about it's that there are some benefits to being part of the class of people who are assumed to be nice so, I mean, let's call the book, as well as, as, well as a sci-fi book, it's, it's a satire. Right? Yes. So you position a situation where the position of men and women are swapped completely, mm-hmm. and basically the women are as bad as... Yeah, as bad as, but no worse, mm. actually, yeah. as bad as. And this is the thing, I do this thing, there's a framing device with letters, and one of the things that tickled me the most was the man writing those letters saying, well, I don't think men would ever have been as bad as this. You know, obviously, that's always what we think. But, like, yes, as bad as, but no worse. I was wondering, just as a sort of thought experiment, and you have, you know, you have a lot of fun in the book. There's, like, a sort of plot that involves the men's rights activists mm-hmm. and stuff. And, of course, you know, they're, they're, those, are, those are hilarious. And, of course, we know men's rights activists exist, yeah. right? We know that's a real thing as well. Yeah, that's what I mean. And in yeah. real life, these, these people are hilarious. Yeah. Um, I was sort of imagining the reception this book would get if it had a man's name on the, yeah. on the cover. Which, interestingly, with the... Let's talk about the frame and device of the letters. Mm-hmm. Because 
there's a series of letters that start the book and end the book. And I don't really want to talk about how that develops because part of the way through the book, you're sort of wrong footers and we think what was going in one, one thing's happening mm. and then something else is. But basically there's letters between a woman who's called Naomi and a man who's an anagram of Naomi. <laughs> Um, <laughs> his name is Neil, but it's not his you. His name is Neil, yeah. funnily enough, but it is, it yeah, is you. It is me. Um, and I wondered if this book, if you'd gone all the way with that and put Neil's name on the front of this book, whether this book would have con- been considered written by some, like, you know, crazed men's activist. Yeah, I mean, that is, yeah, that is really interesting and probably yes. Like... You know, there are those Vida surveys about who gets reviewed and whose books get called important. And, you know, the evidence is if I were a man, then my books would be read slightly differently, Mm -hmm. understood slightly differently, received slightly differently. And, you know, the invitations that you don't receive and the list that you're not on are invisible. But, like, the evidence is that some Mm -hmm. of those things exist, you know. And, obviously, every time I would talk about something like that, it sounds like sour grapes or some kind of bitterness. But, you know, that's that's just the nature of the world that we live in but yes on the other hand there are certain things that you get to talk about and write about as a woman which if you had written about them as a man would be read differently Mm -hmm. so everything that we do is somehow seen through the prism of gender i was going to say prison of gender which is the same that works as well (laughs) that's that's also true uh, so yeah, I think at moments when writing this book, I thought, oh God, am I writing propaganda for the men's rights movement? Because, you know, the men's rights movement would also want to say, women are taking over, it's terrible, they're destroying masculinity. And I don't think that's what women are doing. But I suppose what I'm saying is, well, if you gave us the power to do it, I don't think that everybody would like hold back. <laughs> You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, today I'm talking to Naomi Alderman and we're talking about her book The Power. And Naomi, we've already mentioned the structure, there's this framing device of the novel which is that there's letters at the beginning and the end. And again, let's not go into the end, but (laughs) the beginning. Why do that? Yeah, well, I'm trying to work out how to say it without going into the end. One of the reasons was that if I didn't do the letters it would just be a book about how women got power and then put everything up. And I didn't want it to be a book about that. I I wanted to draw attention to some of the more complex things that I was saying. Another reason was that I really wanted to be able to play around with the world as it is. I enjoyed myself just doing what I called in my notes when I wrote this full reversal. So just if men are treated as women and women are treated like men then how does that look? How does that feel? It's quite fun to play in that for a while. But also, well, we talked about The Liar's Gospel when it was published. And in a way, each of my books is somehow a response to the previous one, uh, which we can talk about, which is, it's it's sort of interesting. You know, you end up feeling like you've just written one enormously long book. And what I realised with The Liar's Gospel was that having gone to read the history of the life of Jesus and the times of Jesus and really immersed myself in it, There are a lot of things that are exceedingly well established by academics, which nobody else wants to know. People don't want to know that Pilate was very certainly recalled to Rome for brutality. Like, this is not the Pilate in the New Testament, and therefore that story doesn't work for us, so we just ignore it. And so I wanted to talk about some of those things, that feeling that I could write this book and it drew on exactly the history that is out there for anybody who wants to know it, but people just don't want to know. So I amused myself with that idea, but it also sent a shiver down my spine. And when you get when I get a shiver down my spine, I usually then write the thing that gave it to me because that's the sign there's something good there. So expand on that then, and we'll talk about the characters because in, in the main body of the book which is sort of set in a time period that's leading up to some unspecified event some, something is coming something is going to happen <laughs> and i think it's almost unspecified by at the end 
kind of unspecified, a bit, bit more specified, yes. Yeah, but I think we can work out. Yeah. We can work out what's going on there. <laughs> um, so who are these characters then? Okay. Let's talk about the, the people. Yeah, so there, are, so there are four main characters. There's Roxy, who is the daughter of a crime family in London. And she has three older brothers, and so she was always thinking that they were going to take it over the business, the family business, but she starts to feel like maybe she could have it. Uh, There is Margot, who is a politician in New England. She had been a fairly low-ranking politician, but she's sort of motivated partly by trying to help her daughter Jocelyn whose power is not working properly, and also motivated by ambition, uh, ends up teaming up with some private company to train these girls to be soldiers. There is Tunde, who is a man. He is a journalist. Uh, He comes from Nigeria, comes from quite a wealthy family, uh, and he is fascinated by this revolution and goes off traveling the world to see the revolution for himself and to record it he wants to be the one who has documented it and he gets himself into some quite hot water and uh and there's ali who is um as we meet her she is she is an abused foster child and in her first few scenes she manages to uh, deal with the person who had been abusing her and uh, she goes on the run and ends up founding a new religion Uh, because you know difficult new times call for new religions (laughs) particularly in america where 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 many new religions have been born over the past hundred years so this is again three main characters again we mentioned that in the first part that you've sort of switched the women and men's roles around Mm -hmm. and that you know that women end up doing things just as bad as yeah. the men so basically you've got you've got somebody who and also i mean it's 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 evident from the beginning she's so not giving, giving anything away that that she's possibly you know she's hearing voices she, oh yes ali is hearing okay, voices so yes. possibly there's something going on there um somebody who starts up a religious cult somebody who's a uh, you know a gangster <laughs> somebody who's a politician who becomes increasingly power mad mm-hmm. The one good person yep. out of that quartet mm-hmm. is the man. Yeah, he's nice to me. He's lovely. He's a really <laughs> lovely chap, you know. And you just kind of, he's sort of cheeky and, and ambitious, but in like a nice way and interested mm-hmm. in the world and wants to help. And I think there are some very nice men in the world, <laughs> Neil. I, <laughs> you know, I think I think there are some very nice men and... There are some very nice women and also some very horrible men and some very horrible women. Um, yes, all of them have a different kind of power, you see. There's a sort of power of violence, the underworld. There's the power of politics. There's the power of religion. And there's the power of journalism. Mm-hmm. In fact, the power of violence is also the power of money. Like, that's what you have if you're in organised crime is usually quite a lot of money. Otherwise, why would you be doing it? And all kinds of power are fungible. Each one can be translated into the other's. You can turn money into violence. You can turn violence into news stories. You can turn news stories into religious and spiritual power. You know, so it is a book about power in that sense. But yes, I really, I, I really like Tunde. I think. Um, I must admit, I really like Roxy as well. Oh yeah. Roxy, Roxy oh good. Was possibly my favourite. Oh She's good. Great. Yeah, I love her. She's funny. Mm-hmm. That's always good. It's interesting, isn't it? Like, like it's interesting to me who people warm to or don't warm to. But it is true that. Margot, the mum, grows monstrous. <laughs> Interesting that this book is coming out at this moment. Yes. Do you know what? At the start of this year, I had a conversation with my American editor about a scene involving Margot, which I shall reveal now. There is a scene in which Margot is standing for election, and at a certain point during one of the debates on the podium, she loses control and zaps her male opponent. And what happens then is uh, she thinks that, you know, her election chances are sunk. But actually, when they get into the voting booths, people vote for her. They say to themselves, well, she's strong. She'd show them. And at the start of this year, my American editor read this and she said... You know, I just don't think this would That's happen. completely yeah. implausible. Yeah, it's implausible. You know, it's much more implausible than women developing electric eel powers <laughs> is the idea that you could do something really horrifying that, you know, 45% of people would just be disgusted by and still get elected. You know, this this would just... Like, I don't believe that she would be a contender if this happened. And then Donald Trump. So, 
I feel I feel the world has been making my point for me very, very adequately, mm-hmm. in fact. Also, when I was working on this book, I started to think, oh, this... Like, raising the question of who's got nuclear weapons. Oh, God, that, sounds, that seems a bit 1970s, doesn't it? Who's going to be interested anymore in who's got their finger on the nuclear button? No one's going to use it. And then there's Donald Trump making my point for me extremely effectively. Well, let's listen back to this on November the 8th <laughs> and hope that you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think that will be the nice thing about this book, I hope, that it will still be relevant to whoever gets elected. Let's hope it's Hillary. But, you know, I think, I think that, that question about what happens when women have more power. I wanted to talk about Jocelyn, who's mm. Margot's daughter. Um, one of the things that came into my mind while I was reading this was... I think oh, Jocelyn, is... by the way, is also really nice. Yeah, Jocelyn's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. I think over the people in the book, yeah, Tunde and Jocelyn, I think, are probably the nicest. And then, like, yeah, Roxy's pretty good. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Well, I wanted, I wanted to know what was, was going on in your mind with Jocelyn, because there was a moment where I thought that because I was thinking, you know, what what happens to trans people mm, in this world yes. is is a thought that I had, and I I wondered if for a moment that's where you were going with Jocelyn because she <laughs> she has like her what's the how do you pronounce a skein a skein so yeah. the, I was going to say skein I think you can say skein that's okay um, which is the the organ that develops that um, you know yes. the electricity comes from in electric eels they're called electroplugs. But mm. I thought that would be a bit too yeah, technical. Yeah, it's not, not quite as good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Joss's doesn't develop properly. You know, yeah. she, for, for a period of time, she... Well, let's not say what happens. Um, no. Joss, Joss's skein doesn't develop properly. And it causes her suffering. It causes mm-hmm. her problems. It's, yeah, it's difficult to live with it not developing properly. So, all right, there are there are people who are born with different chromosomal things, with uh, Kleinfelters, which uh, means you've got not the normal XX or XY mm-hmm. type chromosomes, and that, that can cause all sorts of problems, or you can be absolutely fine, just sort of interestingly intersex. What I wanted to talk about, I haven't specified what's happened with Jocelyn, just hasn't really worked. So, in my mind, she's maybe less the equivalent of a trans person than she is the equivalent of a man who's just not very strong, just quite weedy. And, you know, for whatever reason, maybe asthmatic, you know, short-sighted, a man who doesn't have those things that apparently men are supposed to have because our ideal is that women should be as tiny as possible and men should be as muscly as possible in order to maximise the number of potential pairings where a man can throw a woman across the room, in my view. Um... So yes, there, you know, there are men who are not, not only not violent, but not really capable of violence. And they still have all the problems and the privileges of belonging to the class that is given violence to hold. And I, and I think that's what this book is about. And, and I, I had another conversation with actually my British editor, who was worried that I was muddying the waters, and that I should just say, no, all women have it, and all men don't have it. And I, I said, but that's not how the world works. Actually, there are women who are six foot two and, you know, kickboxing champions, but that doesn't mean they're not subject to sexism in the workplace. There are men who are five foot tall and, uh, you know, don't have an ounce of muscle on them. That doesn't mean that they don't experience some advantages, but they will also be some disadvantages of not fitting into your mm-hmm. appointed gender roles. So... Jocelyn, yeah, Jocelyn has a lot of trouble. She has a lot of trouble with other women. Anyone who has grown up around teenage girls knows that women are not all sweetness and light. But certainly it's not true that women are just lovely to each other. Women are often awful to each other. And I think if women could electrocute each other, they would be equally awful. So, yeah, I think those of us who don't fit... And I would count myself in there. Those of us who don't fit very, very well into what is supposed to be our gender role suffer for it are you know can be mocked for it can be ostracized for it in certain circumstances can be attacked for it a friend of mine was um attacked on the street recently for going around wearing slightly effeminate clothing not even particularly specific you know drag we know that that happens we and this is one of the reasons that trans people suffer so much because those gender boundaries are patrolled with violence actually physical and emotional violence. I think it might be obvious from this book that I think that gender demands 
are of violence that we do on children from the moment that they're born, uh, demanding that they cut off parts of themselves that we would think are just vital. All of us are sometimes weak and sometimes strong, sometimes vulnerable, sometimes victorious. All of us are capable of taking delight in doing work and delight in our relationships and, and in, in, in our children. All of us are hard sometimes and soft sometimes. All of us need to be looked after sometimes. All of us sometimes want to take control. And if we demand that we have to excise some of those parts in order to fit in with an expectation of what it means to be one gender or the other, we are demanding that people remove limbs, amputate important parts of the soul. And I would like us to stop now, if possible. I want to talk about why you wanted to write sci-fi then. And perhaps to do that, let's remind us of what we talked on the last time we, we interviewed about the, uh, the special relationship you have with Margaret Atwood, <laughs> um, whose name is here on the front cover of the, uh, yes, of the book as well, with, with, a, with a nice quote. So how much of Margaret's influence is, is in this book? All right, so um, in 2012, I was picked by Margaret Atwood to be mentored by her under the Rolex Mentor-Protégé scheme. You have to be invited to apply for it. Uh, they invite some, I don't know, 25 people, I think, to apply for each mentorship. And you do them essays on your hopes and your themes and your goals and your dreams. And then four of us were invited to Toronto to meet Margaret, and she picked me. And one of the things that you have to do when you apply is to say what project you would want to work on during the mentorship. And this was the project that I had in mind. So I already had the thing about women can electrocute men and or and anybody. Uh, women can electrocute anybody. And I thought that this would be a good project to talk about with Margaret Atwood. And evidently she, th- she thought it would be a fun project to talk about with me. Um, so so we meet in a number of different places. We're both very, very interested in technology, actually. We're both interested in science. We're both, um, well, yes, interested in the darknesses of humanity. In an early meeting, she recommended me a brilliant book about human sacrifice called The Highest Altar, which it's a great book. It's a great book. And human sacrifice is a very... It's a stage that basically every prehistoric community went through and uh, some communities were practicing human sacrifice until quite recently so it's not that this idea came from margaret but that it seemed like the perfect thing for us to work on together i wrote a first full draft of it which was two hundred thousand words where i was showing her it as i was writing it and then at a certain point i felt like i had to take it back in some way just because the pressure of the thought of Margaret Atwood can become quite intense and it presses down on the top of your skull. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote the second draft without showing her at all until, until the end. And then, so this is, this is the draft that's been published. Um, well, as you know, that's the sort of shape of the book that's been published. I think there's five other versions of it since then. But yes, we talked a lot about it. Uh, it was Margaret who first of all said the word to me, convents, she said, uh, which... It's just a little sort of plopping something, plopping a pebble into the bowl of the novel. And I thought, oh, yes, convents. Yes, very good. They have been seats of female power and could be again. Uh, Yes, very interesting to think about convents. So we would have conversations about it, as I would have with a writing friend, and say, what do you reckon about this? You know, what do you think about that? Margaret also recommended me a very good book by Misha Glennie, about organised crime in Mm -hmm. Europe, which was really helpful in knowing how those systems operate, how they make their money, where they get it from. And we talked a lot early on in the book about, in the writing of the book, about where the right place to start it was. So I had thought that I might start it once the power had already been established and Margaret was very firmly advising me no, you take it at the point that it all happens. And I think that was exactly the right choice. So there is her presence in the book. It seems odd to me somehow saying this, you know, it's your fourth novel, it's your first science fiction novel because of such interest that you have and, you know, fingers in other pies in technology and things. Are you going to are you gonna write more sci-fi? Yeah, I hope so. I love it. I always hoped that I would have some sci-fi in me because mm-hmm. I love reading sci-fi. Douglas Adams was very important to me growing up. Ursula Le Guin was very important. Margaret Atwood was very important to me growing up. And so it always it surprised me <laughs> that my first two novels were contemporary realist um, because that 
typically hasn't been my favourite thing to read. Uh, although there are many contemporary realist novels that I love, but, you know, when looking for something where I'm just like, oh, I can't wait to get back to that, it's usually sci-fi or fantasy, or at least something a bit peculiar. I like books that have got something a bit peculiar to them. So I love, I love Ali Smith and I love Borges, you know. I have a book in the back of my mind, just circling around right now, which has the... Th- in my mind, the title of the book is Why Is My Mother Like That? <laughs> which will not probably end up being the title of it but uh it's not it's not science fiction but it might be a tiny bit near future something but yes that question of why why is my mother like that but then i've got a ya book i want to write as well and a book of short stories that i want to do and hopefully with the following win there might be a tv adaptation of the power which i would love to be involved in so i like keeping myself busy and I don't really think that I ever am going to want to limit myself and say, this is my furrow now, I will plough it. I like, I like being able to travel as far as I can in the realms of gold. I think the TV adaption of the, of the power would be amazing, but also uh, Disobedience is, is possibly going to be a film. Yeah, well. so like I have literally no idea how close you can get to the film being made and then it doesn't get made because people tell me you can get very very close but um yes at the moment it's been announced Rachel Weiss and Rachel McAdams will be starring as two women who had had a relationship uh, as teenagers in the orthodox Jewish community in Hendon and then meet again as adults I think I can say that I've seen the script and it's beautiful and uh, in theory it should be starting to film quite soon but um, I am not privy to the, all the different ways that this has to be organised in order to actually happen. So all I can do is say it's definitely got my thumbs up and uh, I really hope it happens and I'm very excited. I've been talking to Naomi Alderman. We've been talking about her book, The Power, which is out now from Penguin Viking Books. Naomi, thanks so much for sharing it. Oh, well, thank you for talking to me. It's been a pleasure as always. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Emma Jane Unsworth. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Bettina Gapper is a Zimbabwean writer with law degrees from Cambridge, Graz University and the University of Zimbabwe. Her debut collection, An Elegy for Easterly, won the Guardian's first book award in 2009. Her debut novel, which we talked about in the previous Little Atoms, The Book of Memory, was published in 2015, and long-listed for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction. And Patina's back today to talk about her new collection of short stories, Rotten Row. Patina, it's great to have you back. 
Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed our interview last time, so I was looking forward to this one as well. Well, thinking back to the end of that last interview, we talked about how writing the Book of Memory had perhaps been a bit of a, a, bit of a trial and that you were much more comfortable in the format of the short story. So mm. I guess you've gone back to it. This is the weird thing. I, I don't quite know how to answer this because I haven't actually gone back to it because I was writing these stories all along. At the same time. <laughs> At the sure, same time yeah. as, as the Book of Memory. And in fact... I actually got the offer to publish Rotten Row even before I delivered on the Book of Memory. And it's that offer that spurred me on to finish the Book of Memory. Mm-hmm. And that's why Rotten Row comes exactly a year later, because it was just, it was in the pipeline, mm-hmm. you know, it was queued up. That's how I'm doing things, you know. I, I wasn't writing for six years or so. I mean, at least I wasn't publishing for six years or so. But I was writing, so things are queued up. It's mm-hmm. just a question of when they're going to come. But it really, it's really thrilling for me to go back to, to short stories because I really do love short stories. It's something that fills every publisher with dismay mm-hmm. because publishers don't actually like short stories as much as authors sometimes do. But I'm very happy to have a publisher who's supporting me in my desire to be both a novelist and a short story writer. The stories in this book, I was going to ask you, know, when are these stories written? As you said, you've obviously been writing them over a period of years. But unlike a lot of books of short stories, they have a vague common theme. But mm. more than that, there are characters that, that sort of reappear through, through a number of the stories. So I guess there's got to be some planning involved in that. This is not a book of like, you know, 12 or however many completely disparate stories. Yeah, do you know... I wish I'd written an elegy for Easterly in the way that I wrote this book. But at that time, I was a green writer and I didn't really know what a short story collection could look like. So I just, you know, assembled a a bunch of stories that were around the theme of resilience and people living difficult lives in Zimbabwe. But for this collection, I've had the privilege and the pleasure of becoming more aware of what a short story collection can look like. And I was greatly influenced by Edward P. Jones, the American short story writer, whose stories are very carefully constructed, not Mm -hmm. only at the individual level, but at the level of the collection. You know, he's got these two amazing story collections, Lost in the City and Orland Hager's Children, where each story mirrors a story in a later book, that kind of thing. So a character that appears in the first collection appears in a similar story in the second collection. And it's very well thought out and very carefully thought out. And what I actually did was I mapped these stories on a, on a, I really storyboarded them, you know, because I wanted to move certain characters into different stories. And I wanted to, for instance, the fate of the man in the first story, the dropper, who's uh, a Rhodesian hangman, I wanted to finish his story in another, mm-hmm. in another collection. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't enjoy the first story without knowing what happens to him. You will. But I wanted that to have that sort of like cohesive kind of quality. And I wanted the stories to be like Zimbabwe, you know, the mm-hmm. way we walk in and out of each other's lives. You know, so that, that was really a deliberately thought through thing. And I think I was going to talk about this later on, but let's, let's talk about it now because I think it's relevant. This is the style of the stories. There are different styles that you use here. One of the stories, The News of Her Death, which mm. is sort of uh, a number of women in a hairdressing salon and it's written in a sort of very colloquial way and it's very funny and, you know, there's a lot of language and slang. Yeah. And then the next story, which is The Death of Wonder, mm. is written, it's in a very sort of straightforward sort of English style, although the story's about the supernatural. It's so kind I of guess a ghost perhaps story. That, yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. So I guess that sort of helps that it's it's sort of written in that way. But then when you see the the character, the character who's having a, a hair done in that story is the character that sort of appears in, in numerous places throughout the book. And so it's interesting to see that character pass through mm. not just a number of stories but a number of styles. Yeah. You know, that character, Pepukai, is a stand in for me. Mm-hmm. You know, so every time you see Pepukai in any of my stories or Emily, Pepukai or Emily, uh, who's got two names, it's usually me narrating something that really happened to me. So the hairdressing story really did happen to me. Um, I went to a hairdressing salon where the women were all agog with the story of uh, a colleague of theirs who had been murdered by her boyfriend. And as the day, you know, passed, the stories got more and more exaggerated and more exaggerated, and it was all that they could talk about. And this is something that happened to... It happened about 12 years ago. Um, but it's something I always kept at the back of my mind as a possibility for a, for a very 
contained story that is really told through dialogue. It's a story in dialogue. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's really all it is. And in the Sierra Leone case, uh, a story called A, Ca- a Kind of Justice, mm-hmm. The same character, Pepukai, goes to Freetown and witnesses a trial. And that's exactly something that happened to me. I was very struck by how the judges were much more concerned about the decorum and the demeanor of the, not the decorum, but the demeanor of the witness, rather than what the witness actually had to say. Yeah. And what else? Uh, there's another, there's a couple of other Pepukai stories. The, the one that like, made me think of, of you most of all, I guess, was the, uh, the old familiar faces story. <laughs> that's actually one of my favorite. Which is yeah, it's, it was one of my favorites. Yeah. Which is it's it's really funny story set within. It's basically a conference for uh, human rights NGOs. Yeah. It's interesting that contrast because you're sort of having those laugh with that world of those people who whose relationship with the actual suffering of human rights is just going to meetings and sitting and watching yeah. PowerPoint presentations yeah. and things and trying to you know what, like what are the uh, the, the council one point says you know why. Why do these meetings always have to be in resort hotels? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. it's it's a career. And then when we get to a kind of justice, the second story that you just mentioned, you know, suddenly you're relating some of the terrible atrocities that mm. have happened, and, and I think that really sort of that brings yeah. that first story yeah. into focus. That's, it's, it's so kind of you to say that because you know that story. I, I was a little bit worried about it because I thought people might be thinking that I'm mocking the victims. Not at all. I'm not mocking the victims. No, am I? You know, sort of forgiving the perpetrators in any way. I'm not. I'm not giving the perpetrators a pass. And I'm not mocking the victims. I am mocking the attitudes that sees victims as just statistics for reports yeah. and to get further funding. It's something that struck me um, when I read uh, you know, these, these Facebook pages of these uh, human rights organizations in Zimbabwe. The way they so casually throw about pictures of bruised people and people who've been beaten up, even people in their coffins who are dead, just, they just fling them out there you know, mm-hmm. without any thought as to the dignity of, of the people concerned. And so I started to think about a situation where people are so immune to pain that all they see are, oh, this is, a, this is another weapon to use against an OPF. Mm-hmm. So you're no longer seeing the person. You're this seeing is what they represent. I mean, that's also something that certainly we see of, I mean, not just Africans exclusively, but certainly, you know, we didn't see any photographs of bodies of the people in the recent Paris massacres, for instance. You know, I mean, that's something that's, exactly. that's very much... It's a, it's a sort of modern human rights equivalent of those you know, sort of National Geographic yeah. pictures that you yeah. used to get. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, there was that moment, uh, that powerful moment when a lot of newspaper editors agonised over whether to publish pictures of that poor little boy on the beach yeah. in Syria. That was a powerful, powerful moment. Very much like the, you know, that famous picture of that girl running from the Nepal, yeah. um, you know, in, during the Vietnam Vietnam War. But you don't find that kind of sensitivity with with the Zimbabwean victims. And I don't really. My argument is not with the Westerners anymore. I, I don't care so much about how the West views bloody Africa. My argument is with how Zimbabweans treat each other, mm-hmm. you know, and how we view each other, because. It's one thing to say, oh, the West does this, the West does that, but we are even worse than the West in in many ways. So in that particular story, I really wanted to make a commentary about how we are using the bodies of the beaten and the bruised to make political points in a way that is deeply insensitive to the actual victims. We should say as well, in the story of the old familiar faces, which is the one about the conference, Mm. all the the characters in that are... Locals, they're not, you know. Yeah, you talk the, about, you know, you have the a only bit of fun. Yeah, with... the only person who feels any kind of shock is the special guest. Yeah. Because she's never seen this before. So she immediately gasps when she sees this. But everybody else is checking their phone and answering phone calls about, you know, the broken down cars and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about the title. So, Rotten Row, people will be familiar with the, uh, the Rotten Row in London, in Regent's Park, is it? Hyde Park. In Hyde Park. Mm. What's that got to do with Zimbabwe? Yeah, you know, we have these wonderful names that came from the UK. Um, we have uh, Salisbury, we had um, Chatsworth, we had Marlborough, we had Mabel Rain, we had all sorts of, you know, places that were named after people or places in Zimbabwe. We even have the Eastern Highlands. You know, we have the Eastern Highlands in, in Zimbabwe. And Rotten Row is actually a street in Harare. It was established in the time of Salisbury. And it's the street on which you find the criminal division of the magistrate's court in Harare. So because these 20 stories are stories that are about crime, the causes of crime, the consequences of crime, 
I thought, why not call them Rotten Row? Mm-hmm. It's such a, an evocative title. My only worry is that I'll probably piss off the government so much that they might end up changing the name of the road. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be a pity because it's one of Harare's oldest roads. And what's really funny is that there doesn't seem to be an understanding, at least in some quarters in the city, uh, the municipal governance, that row actually also means street. So there's some road signs that say Rotten Row Street. <laughs> I mean, you just mentioned that the stories uh, focus around crime. Mm. But more than that, the book's also split into two halves. So let's talk about that. What are the, the two separate sections of the book? Because that's also relevant to the actual the locale of Rotten Row and the, yeah. you know, the courthouse. And yeah. Things. Well, I split the book into two sections. One is called Capital and the other is called Criminal. And Capital, the section Capital, is to do with um, crimes in which a person loses their life. And I call it capital because we still have the death penalty. We still have the so-called capital offences, mm-hmm. and murder is the gravest of the capital offences. And then the second section is called criminal. And here, the kind of crimes that I talk about are mainly statutory crimes, or crimes that don't attract the same severe penalty as capital offences would. Um, you've also seen you elsewhere describe this book as a love letter to Zimbabwe, which... I mean, in, in its tone, perhaps the Book of Memory wasn't so much. Mm. So is it? It's a love letter to Zimbabwe in the sense that it's my last book about Zimbabwe for a very, very long time. And it's, it's, a, it's a love letter to Zimbabwe, not in terms of the subject matter, but in terms of what I put into it. I gave everything I have to this book. I actually think, I was saying this to my editor at lunch earlier, that I think it's the best book I've written so far. Mm-hmm. I really gave everything... In it, and I really frustrated people here at Faber because they would say, Okay, when is the book coming? It started off as 12 stories, and then it became 15, and then it became 18, and then it became 25. I have five more somewhere, and then I just thought that's just too much. I mean, it was a hundred and something, it was huge. So I, I trimmed it down to 20 stories because I really wanted to say everything I want to say about Zimbabwe at this time. So I've sort of like purged it all out of me, and then I'm going to go away and write about something else, and then I'm maybe going to come back to Zimbabwe. So in that sense, it's my love letter in the sense that I've given everything Mm -hmm. I have to this book. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Patina Gapper. We're talking about her latest collection of short stories, Rotten Row. And Patina, we just talked about the name Rotten Row. Let's just talk about the cover for a second. It's got the colours of the Zimbabwean flag in, in the design, but more specifically, there's a little picture here of like a VW Combi van, uh, which features in in the, in the number of the stories. It's a Toyota. Oh, it's a Toyota. It's supposed is it? to be a Toyota. That must be where the name comes from, though. Combi. Combi is it's a Volkswagen. combination van. Yeah. Yeah, combination okay. van. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I would just say there is a uh, there is a van. But on no, the... actually, you you I, I think we should keep this question because in the original drawing, it was a VW because that's the combi mm-hmm. that people here know. And then I took it home, and a friend of mine said, "No, but that's a VW. We don't have VWs in Zimbabwe. It should be a Toyota." So, so they're all big Toyota. So it became, that, yeah. <laughs> it became a Toyota, but initially it was it was actually a VW. Yeah. So the um, well, the van itself, which is called the the bus, it's a bus. It's called a combi in mm-hmm. in, in Zimbabwe. It's sort of central to to the city. So tell us something about the bus. Yeah, it's it's really what gets people from different points of the city especially if they don't have cars. So the combi is everywhere. Combis are everywhere. And almost every single phone-in program will have people complaining about what a menace combi drivers are and combi towels, and they're always running battles between combi drivers and, and the police and so on. And yet the combi itself has created a culture of its own. There's a culture of paying. You don't give your money directly to the driver or to the tout, to the conductor, you pass the money on to each other, and you all squeeze into the combi, and you always have to sit four in a row, even though there are actually only three seats. So 
so you always have to really squeeze yourself in. And there's a little bit, um, there's a little seat at the front here where the engine is, and there's a metal casing over the engine. Normally no one is supposed to sit there, but if you're willing to pay half price, you can sit there. In the book I call it Pakadoma, mm-hmm. at Kadoma, because that's what it was called at the time I was writing the book. But now I realize it's got a different name. It's called Face the Nation, because you'll be facing everybody else. <laughs> Ah, who wants to sit on the Face the Nation? They call it Face the Nation or Facebook. You know, so there's a whole culture and language around combis that I find really fascinating. And I find that the most um, interesting things come to me when I'm when I'm on a combi. I use combis all the time, much to the dismay of many people I know. Because, you know, as, as a middle-class lawyer who works in Geneva and all the rest of it, you're not supposed to use combis. But I love them. So what happens, Omar, on the typical journey there? Why do you love them so much? Because they're so, it's life is so unpredictable on a combi. Anything can happen. The, the, your your driver might decide he needs to evade the police, so he goes on a completely different route, taking you <laughs> very far from the route that you had hoped to travel on. Or there might be some kind of quarrel between the the combi touts, the cold windies. They're incredibly quarrelsome. The windies. Uh, there might be a, a a fight between two windies or between a windy and a passenger. Or you discover some new music that you didn't know before because they're always playing the latest music. So yeah, it's always an adventure. Yeah, and and the combi towels and drivers. They are really incredibly bright young men who just didn't have any other opportunities. So mm-hmm. the conversation is always very interesting. And the the character. There's a, a story. The second story in in this collection is set on one of these. And indeed, it's basically about what happens to one of those towns. Mm. And it's it's a it's sort of funny and amusing story, but then sort of shocking in the in 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 the sort of final. I don't know how how much we should say about it, but but is that like you've just said you like you like taking those those journeys for the unpredictability? That yeah. does not seem like a journey you'd want to be on. No, I mean, well, I think we don't really have to. Um, we won't be giving anything away because the very first sentence says uh, Giza will die in exactly forty-five yeah, minutes, and so on. So it's really the story of the last forty-five minutes in a young man's life, and it's a story that I initially wrote for Amnesty International. They asked uh, fifty writers or so to write a story inspired by a different article of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and mine was every person has the right to be declared innocent until proven guilty in a fair trial. So that was my, that was the didactic uh, aspect of it. I had to write a story about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And the first version, called An Incident of Lifetime, was fairly didactic. But then as I, I revised that story for this collection, I just thought, let me open it up and really make it a story set in real time. And it's a story that's set on a combi. One of the very kind things you mentioned is that I told these stories in different ways, different voices, different forms even. And this is one of the stories like the news of her death, the Mm -hmm. one that's set in the headdress and so on, that takes place in real time. Yeah. Yeah. News of her death takes place over about two hours, two and a half hours, three hours. This takes place over exactly 45 minutes. So from the time we're on the combi to the time we reach the end of the journey... 45 minutes will have passed. And I actually timed it on a combi. <laughs> I'm a method writer. <laughs> a lot of these stories, I mean, that one, you know, ends in, ends in a shocking death. And, and we've talked about one where there's, you know, there's long descriptions of some atrocities that have happened. Mm. But mixed into all of those stories, and, you know, that particular one, you know, you have a bit, a bit of fun with the the dress of sort of Western human rights workers that are at the criminal court, at the, at the International Court. Cuba is, like, laced all the, way through, all the way through this book. Again, in a way that perhaps... I mean, there were certainly humorous moments in the book of memory, but the overall tone of it... So do you also prefer to be, you know, be able to use humour in the stories? Absolutely. I, I really love to write... I, I'm, re- I'm desperate, desperate to write satire. I think I told you last time that my... My biggest wish was to write a satirical novel about Grace Mugabe, but I can't. I really can't, you know. The problem with satire is that not everybody gets it. Whereas humour, that's not at the level of satire, is much more relatable, Mm -hmm. I think, you know. So that's really the kind of writing that I like to do. And I just can't help but look at, you know, life in a humorous... Just now we're talking about what's happening in that picture. I mean, that's, that's immediately where my mind goes to... Why would all these naked men be hammering <laughs> this poor little thing, whatever it is? 
And I think it's also partly because I'm Zimbabwean that we tend to look at everything through the lens of humor. You know, so for me, humor is very, very important when I'm writing, especially about Zimbabwe. Another one of the stories that we've already mentioned, uh, The Death of Wonder. I love that title that it's got, you know, it has so many, you know, so many possible meanings. Do you know, the, the news of her death was initially going to be called The Death of Kindness. And then I thought, eh, too much on the nail. So I, I, I went with The Death of Wonder and then The News of Her Death, yeah. Yeah. But it does the same, it plays the same purpose because yeah. we think, oh, okay, I wonder what this is going to be about, you know, about a bigger subject, and then literally it's about the death of a <laughs> person called Wonder. Wonder. Yeah, it's a very popular name, by the way. Don't mark it. No, it's, you know what I think about the names. And um, this story, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a story that's been related by the policeman um, who's investigated this death. And it's a story which involves ghosts and witchcraft and stuff so again I wanted to I think we talked about that a little bit when we talked about the book of memory but I'm sort of fascinated by the um you know the modernization of the country but with these undercurrents of of the old stuff yeah yeah it's the more I I I spend time in Zimbabwe and I was just in Zimbabwe last week the more I spend time in Zimbabwe the more I realize that we have not really leapt into modernity at all. I mean, we really believe, a lot of us really believe in, in these things, you know, in witchcraft, we believe in ghosts, and we believe in Ngozi, which was the propelling force in the Book of Memory that, you know, if you kill somebody, they'll come back and, and haunt you. And I really like the idea of Ngozi, because it's how we, it's how we controlled crime in the days before there was a criminal justice system. And I'm very interested in how the idea of Ngozi sits alongside the criminal justice mm-hmm. system. And in this, this is a perfect story in which there is no justice. So the Ngozi rises triumphant, you know. And I wanted to... I don't believe any of this, in any of this stuff. I don't believe in witchcraft and in all of that. But I do respect people who do. I respect them in the sense that I also respect religious people. Mm-hmm. I respect that they believe in what they believe in, even though I might not share those beliefs. So I wanted to write a story that took those beliefs seriously. At the same time, saying to the reader, oh, maybe this is not what actually happened. Maybe there are other explanations for, for what eventually transpired. So I thought that the best person to write or to narrate the story is somebody who is by nature a cynic, but has seen things that make him think, mm, maybe he needs to reassess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's actually one of my... It's a, it's a story that I wrote as the third story in the book. Yeah, and it was really long. I, I actually cut it quite a bit. It was it was one of the longer stories. Yeah. I just wanna wanna talk about one more. We've already you have already touched on this one, how this mm. is an experience that happened to you. Yeah. But the news of her death, the story yeah. in the um in the salon. And those women are just wonderful. I mean it, more than any of, of these stories, I wanted to I wanted to see these people. I wanted to be there in that room and and, and sort of hear them talking. Like you, you really create that salon and those people and the different characters and their voices. I thought that, that story was particularly no, great. Thank you very much for that. It's, it's actually also one of my it's it's one of my favorite stories. It's really about women policing each other. I know we live in a patriarchy and all the rest of it, but one of the things that are, that really has struck me about our patriarchal society, especially in places like Zimbabwe is how women end up playing the role of policemen on behalf of the patriarchy. And this story really is about women judging each other and judging one particular person who's a hairdresser, somebody who's supposed to be their friend, their co-worker, as being morally loose. And, you know, basically they're saying she's a slut. They're basically, Mm -hmm. you know, slut-shaming her and also victim-blaming her Mm -hmm. because they're saying that she killed she was killed because basically she asked for it you know if she had been more virtuous she wouldn't be dead and it's an aspect that i've always found really intriguing that women can be very very good at and there's this thing that women do in zimbabwe less so here when you enter a room full of women especially a hair salon people give you this up and down just to take in every item of your of your of your appearance so i find i found that aspect extremely amusing and i wanted to write um, a dialogue driven story that is uh, again set uh, set in a very confined space, and that takes place in real time. And you said that happened to you in real life, and you also talked about you know going to those those sort of trials and, and experiencing that. Mm. Did you also run over a chicken? Uh, my ex boyfriend did. Yeah, I got the story that the run of a chicken from my ex boyfriend. They ran over a chicken, and it was 
it was as though you know the, the civil war had come back <laughs> um, just to finish off then um i wanted to talk about what's next and you're writing another novel yes i am why because what i really want to do is to publish the current stories i'm public i'm writing the stories that are set in geneva but there is no way I can write, I can publish two short story collections in a row. It just doesn't work like that. But at the same time, this is a novel that has been obsessing me for, for a fair bit of my life. Yeah, I've seen you say also again that this is the book you've been you know, wanting to this write. This is the book I'm, yeah, I'm meant to write. If This is the novel I'm meant to write. It's a, it's a novel I actually have the first draft on floppy disk. That's how long ago <laughs> I started writing this. And um, I've actually moved to Scotland to write it. Oh. I'm actually, I live in Edinburgh at the moment where I have access to David Livingstone's papers in mm-hmm. the National Library of Scotland. So it's a novel about the African companions of David Livingstone. And I've been talking about it in almost every interview, in, in, a, in, in part to psych myself up. Yeah. Like, if I talk about it enough, it'll actually appear. Yeah, because we're going to have to talk about this now in the future. Exactly, exactly. We have a publication date and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all very good, and I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to be writing this book right now. So when are you going to write the satire about Grace McGarvey? I want to. Do you think I should? Yeah, of course you should. I want to so badly. But she's almost satire herself, you know, <laughs> without having to, to make anything up, you know. I really want to write that book. Um, we'll see what happens in the next three years. Yeah. So I've been talking to Padina Gappo. We've been talking about Rotten Road, which is our latest collection of stories, which is out now from Faber and Faber. Patina, thanks again so much for coming in and telling us about it. Thank you very much, Neil. I hope we'll come back and, you know, do this again soon. We will. We definitely will. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.